Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. And our scripture this morning comes from Luke 12, 35 through 40. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning, like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Good morning. My name is uh, Jonathan. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. If you are here visiting family or something for Thanksgiving, we especially just want to say we're so glad you're here with us. One of the advantages of having a few days off for Thanksgiving is that I got to do something I don't do very often, which is sit down and watch a movie. And I watched one of my very favorite movies that I first watched 30 years ago, and it's really stuck with me since then. It's called The Remains of the Day. Not sure if you've heard of it. Uh, it's Anthony Hopkins and Emma Thompson, and it is a, a powerful, powerful story. A little depressing, um, but a very powerful story that is based on a novel by one of my favorite novelists, Kazuo Ishiguro, um, which I recommend the novel as well. And what what happens in this novel and in this movie, The Remains of the Day, is that it's it takes place in the mid 1950s with a man, Mr. Stevens, who was the head butler at a very large uh, manor house, an estate called Darlington Hall in Oxfordshire, England. And he is looking back on his life and looking back, he's probably in 70 or so at this point, and he's looking back on his life of service and there are a lot of questions he has. Some regret. He was the head butler and kind of ran everything at this very uh, important house in the 1920s and 30s, which is a very tumultuous time in European politics, including in England. A lot of questions as Hitler's rising to power and whether they should appease him and not. And, and so a lot of world events happened at this house that he was privy to. And he's beginning to wonder about whether he made the right choices in some of his loyalties as a British butler, as well as regret that he never told the woman that he loved that he did, and he lost her. So it's a, it's, there are many layers going on in the story. It's very powerful. It's very uh, haunting, as I said, and it really sticks with you and, and worth really thinking about it. But the reason I was thinking about the movie and the reason I watched it again is because I was thinking about our text for today. And particularly, the what is woven into this entire story is something that's been a crucial part of British society for a thousand years. And that is that you have a class of people 
an aristocracy with the royalty being the highest portion of that. And then you have a very large class of servants, of waiters, of people who serve that class, that aristocratic class. And of course, it's woven into this story deeply. It's what the main character is in this role. But it's actually a major part of a lot of British literature because it's been a major part of British culture. You're probably more familiar with it from something like The Crown or Downton Abbey. And sometimes it's referred to as like Upstairs, Downstairs, which was the name of a famous um, British show as well, to refer to kind of the two classes of people. And a lot of British comedy is actually based on this class. And like Jeeves and Wooster, if you knew P.G. Woodhouse or others. So a lot of it is just built into this, uh, this very British culture. But as I thought about that, I thought about we as Americans, we have a very complicated relationship as we think about this British class system. On the one hand, we all love England, right? And we all love English, and we would love to be the bejeweled uh, lords and ladies of a manor house. That part's cool. But as soon as we start thinking about the fact that there's a whole class of people that are either born and bred as aristocrats or born and bred as the servant class, everything in us, I'll speak as an American, goes against that. That just feels so wrong to us. In fact, really at the core of American values, breaking away from England was precisely this issue. It was the issue of that all humans are born with certain inalienable rights and people are able to rise up and make their own life. That's kind of at the core of the American experience. And so I think we feel really complicated. We feel this complex set of emotions when we think about this kind of class system, and they're actually experiencing it as well uh, in, in the time of this story even. Now, the reason why that is important for us today, and the reason why I'm bringing it up, the reason I was thinking about this, is because in our text, we see this core idea that to be a Christian is actually to be a servant, to actually be the servant of a Lord, a master of a house, a household of God. That this is a big idea in the Bible. It's, it occurs hundreds of times in the New Testament alone, and yet it's not something that we, especially as American Christians, probably think much about or talk much about because it just feels like such an odd and uncomfortable sort of experience. So we're preaching through Luke 12, and what I want to do today, I had Lindsay read a portion of our passage. We're going to look at 12, 35 to 48. I just want to go to the text, figure out what Jesus is saying there, and then I just want to ask two questions about it that, ref that relate to our own lives, I think. And so if you have a Bible, I encourage you to look there. I, I always need to pay attention to what it says. I think it's page 844, 846, somewhere in there. If you want to use the Pew Bible, you can just open your own Bible to Luke chapter 12 or pull it up on your phone. We're going to see um, what Jesus has to say, and then I just, again, want to ask a couple of questions. So let's just look at the text here, and we can call the, the, the text of 1235 to 48 the teaching of it being all focused on, as I say, they're waiting for the return of the Son of Man. So we've been going through the Gospel of Luke for a while now, and we come now to a text that touches on something that the New Testament talks about hundreds of times as well, and that is that to be a Christian is to understand, to believe that Jesus didn't just come into the world once, what we're about to celebrate at Christmas, 
But Christians are living in between the times of Christmas, Jesus entering the world, Son of God becoming incarnate, and a second coming. The great hope and belief that he is going to enter the world a second time, not in a Christmas way, but to reestablish God's kingdom upon the earth. And there are lots of texts in the Bible that talk about this, and this is one of them. And the topic, the way Jesus talks about this, is by using the metaphor, using the image of servants in a household and a big household of God with servants in it. Now, that part's pretty straightforward, but I'm about to read through the text, and what you'll see is that it actually gets a little jumbled up. Because what Jesus does here, he uses three different images that all relate to being a servant and there being a household, the household of God. And you have to kind of distinguish them so you can see the difference between them. So I'm going to take this in three little sections. Let's start with 12, 35 um, through 38. Um, Let me read this for you here again. It says, be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at table and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. So that's our first image. And what Jesus does here is he tells us that the way to think of ourselves in relationship to God and the way to think of ourselves in relationship to Jesus' second coming is if we were servants in a large household that our master has gone away at a wedding banquet, his or someone else's, and we're longing and looking for him, attentively waiting for him to come back. And that first verse, verse 35, your translation probably says something like, be dressed and ready for service. That's a nice way of saying what the the text says, and you still see it in some of the older translations, gird up your loins, which is that great old King James kind of phrase, gird up your loins, that we don't use very much anymore. But the idea is if you're wearing a robe, you pull it up, and we would say something like, you know, tighten your belt or roll up your sleeves. In other words, get ready to run, get ready. And this is a phrase that comes from the Passover for the Exodus, Um, when the Israelites are told in Exodus 12 to gird up their loins, that is, be ready to, to, to go because God may send you at any moment to say, escape. And this is a phrase then that's used all throughout the Bible, including in the New Testament. And then it gets applied for Christians as the way to live as we're waiting. Keep your lamps lit, be prepared, be dressed and ready to go. And the image is one, obviously, of awaiting and preparedness attentively. Even if the master returns at 3 a.m., you're there, ready, waiting to serve. And then in the second image, in verses 39 and 40, Jesus shifts now to talk about the same idea, but now we are the household owner. Look at verse 39. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known At what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You must also be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. So you see, he's kind of shifted metaphors, but the point is still the same. That we need to be prepared because just like if we were unprepared for a thief to break in, if we knew that was going to happen, we'd be prepared and ready and would manage things well. 
So the, as with all things, the analogy breaks down because Jesus' point is not that he's like a thief who's going to sneak in or something. That's not the point. The point is prepare, be prepared. A wise and faithful servant is one who's looking and waiting and prepared. And then that leads to the third and the longest part that I didn't have Lindsay read, but we'll look at here. And it starts in verse 41, where Peter then interjects and says, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? In other words, he's saying, I think he's saying, is this parable for us like leaders among the disciples or is this for all the Christians or even is this for everybody in the world? And Jesus kind of answers a yes, yes, yes in many ways. This is a message for everyone that we need to be prepared for the Lord's second coming. It is true that all Christians are servants, but I think the way Jesus answers it, he's particularly then talking about those whom God calls to be leaders among God's Christian people. And the image he uses here is of being a steward or a household manager. What's a steward? A steward is someone who's also a servant in relationship to a Lord. They're not the owner of the house, but they've been given special responsibilities, like Mr. Stevens in the reigns of the day. He's the head butler, everything, or the head housekeeper, where all the other people report to him, and this person can exercise their life well or foolishly. And so Jesus is now saying, I want you to be wise and faithful stewards. Look at verse 42. The Lord answered Peter's question, who then? is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time. It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. So let me pause there. Did you see that? It will be good for, that was up in the previous uh, stories as well. The idea is you'll be blessed, you'll be happy, you'll flourish if you live in a certain way in waiting and anticipation for the household owner's uh, return. But then Jesus goes on and gives the alternative option. What if someone doesn't, they do have responsibility and they don't live faithfully and wise? Look at verse 45. But suppose the servant, that is the household steward in this case, says to himself, my master's taking a long time in coming And then he begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour when he's not aware, and he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows, but the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. For everyone from whom, sorry, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded, and for the one who's been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Now, <laughs> there's some intense stuff in there, and it may be confusing, but let me boil it down to, I think, what the point clearly is. It's something that you and I already know. It's something that you and I believe we know in our bones is just and right, and that is that those who have been given more responsibility, those who have been given more authority, those who have been given more opportunities, especially those who are leaders who then abuse that leadership and live recklessly and live foolishly and squander what they've been given. What Jesus is saying here is what we know in our souls that there is a just greater judgment. This is how our legal system is set up and this is how we know it to be right that 
those who are given greater opportunities and greater responsibilities do have greater responsibility when it comes to judgment. And this is what Jesus is saying. And this is what the Bible talks about a lot of places. This is why Jesus is in constant conflict with the Pharisees and the religious leaders, not with the regular people, because they're the ones who should know, and yet they're taking advantage of and not serving the people well. This is what the prophets all throughout the Old Testament, they're always pointing out to the leaders who have failed in misleading the people and taking advantage of God's commands um, to take advantage of other people. This is the same thing Jesus is saying. So even though it sounds really weird and harsh, this is just judgment is what he's talking about. But notice what ties all of this together is the same idea that to be a Christian is to be in the household of God and to live expectantly as servants that we're servants in a household waiting for the Lord to return. This is crucial to really our identity as Christians. And, and the key, I think, is in 1242, that our call is to live faithfully and live wisely. Faithfully and wisely. So I think that's the teaching of this text. I said I wanted to ask two questions to kind of drive this home to our own lives, and here's the first one. So if that's true, here's the first question. What does it mean, what does it really mean to be a servant of Jesus? What does it mean to be a servant of Jesus? When you and I read the New Testament, if you're a Christian, what the Bible says, there are a ton of amazing and beautiful things that are true of you and me. If you're a Christian, the New Testament says you are a son and daughter of God himself. You're a child of God. If you're a Christian, the Bible says you actually are heirs and co-heirs with Christ of the coming kingdom. If you're a Christian, the Bible says you are actually citizens of a kingdom with a good king and Lord Jesus. If you're a Christian, the Bible says you and I are disciples, we're learners, we're students in the way of God. If you're a Christian, we are brothers and sisters, we're saints, we're ones who are made holy. We are living stones that are being built together as the new temple of God where the spirit of God dwells. These are all things that are true of us and we're servants. We're servants in the household of God. And I wonder if we've forgotten that. I wonder if we've lost that image. With, along with those, all those other beautiful things that are true and are, and are really core to our identity, I wonder if especially as American Christians, because the whole idea of there being a servant class feels so wrong to us and, and it's just not how we talk usually, I wonder if we've forgotten that this is also a core part of our identity of what it means to be Christians, that we are servants together in the household of God. So the question is, what does that really mean? If you're a Christian today, what does it mean to be a servant of Jesus? When you think about God, and when you think about Jesus, and when you think about your own life, how often do you and I think of ourselves as a servant? Like, is that a is that an image? Is that a part of your, like, if you put that on your business card, would that be part of it, servant? And, I, and notice, I, I don't just mean do you serve. I think we have a lot of great people that serve, whether it's in Sojourn Kids or passing out bulletins or making coffee or all the other things we might do. There, there are lots of people in our church that serve. But if you're like me, 
you might actually serve out of a sense of my noble and, and uh, personal choice to be virtuous, but I don't probably think of myself primarily as a servant, as a waiter. I tend to think of my service as something that I'm giving as a gift, which is true, right? But I'm wondering if we think of ourselves in this primarily, in this primary identity way as a servant. What if you and I, what would it look like if you and I woke up every day and consciously embraced that part of our identity, not our whole identity, but part of our identity in our relationship with God is that we are actually servants, You are not your own, but you've been bought with a price, as the Apostle Paul reminds us. Do you know where that image of redemption comes from? It comes from servants or slaves that have been in bondage to someone else. Spiritually, we'd say to sin, to the kingdom of darkness, and that Jesus has rescued through his own blood. He has rescued and purchased us, yes, so that we can be free, but free in allegiance to a new and good and different king. The idea of being in a covenantal relationship with God, the idea of entering into the kingdom of God throughout the whole Bible means that a king has rescued us and established a community of people that calls us now to allegiance. Now, that's bad news if the king is bad, but it's wonderful news if the king is good. And I just wonder if we've lost that sort of thinking about who we are as redeemed ones, ones that have been purchased and we are no longer our own. And we could ask, why, why does Jesus even need to bring this up? This doesn't sound like a great image. It's because for most of us, this is entirely counterintuitive. This is entirely counternatural to think of ourselves and embrace the idea that we are serving others, not just in our actions, but in our very identity as well. 20 years ago or so when our family was living in Scotland, I was one of the few postgraduate students who owned a car. And so what that meant when my professor who was uh, organized a lot of things, when he would bring in dignitaries and other people to, for conferences, I was the one who usually served as the chauffeur and as the, basically the manservant to these, in my world, pretty famous people. So one conference I remember distinctly 20 years ago, I was able to pick up from the airport, drive from St. Andrews down to Edinburgh and pick up and then serve for a few days as kind of the manservant to uh, Professor Dr. Martin Hengel und Frau Hengel, uh, who are a famous New Testament guy from Germany, and then also um, Jürgen Moltmann, a theologian. And then probably the most exciting one was that the then Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, and his chaplain, um, I was the, their kind of servant and uh, chauffeur for a few days. And, you know, it was quite an amazing experience and I did not resent it at all because they were good people. They were good people and it was actually an honor to me to get to serve them. Now, I'm not saying I want to do that for my whole life, right? (laughs) Granted, but as an American, I tasted a little bit of what it would mean to be a servant to someone good. Now, I know that a lot of our service is for people who aren't dignitaries and people who maybe don't even treat us well, whether it's children or 
elderly parents or whatever it is, some, whatever your situation is, I realize that not all of our service is good, but what I'm tr- in the sense of that it's not easy. But what I'm trying to cast a vision for you is that this is a primary identity for who we are, especially in relationship to God, and then by extension, in relationship to others. What if you and I woke up on any given morning embracing this notion that I'm a servant of God, and we woke up in the Lord while we're still in bed and said, here I am. Here I am, my good Lord. Guide me into the paths of life giving service today. My time is yours. My gifts are yours. My money is yours. My words, my actions, my calendar is yours. What if you and I embrace that in our relationship with our spouses or my kids or neighbors or friends or coworkers, if we embrace this posture of being a servant, not needing to win an argument, not needing to get the last word, not needing to get the recognition I think I deserve, not being quick to, ups- to be upset when things don't go the way I had planned them. What would it mean if I embraced my identity of a servant in relationship to God? I was thinking this week about how we call Jesus the Lord, but we, that's not just like his first name or something. <laughs> that's a title that's appropriate for the honor and majesty and reverence and humility that is appropriate to give to him. Last weekend, I was at uh, academic conferences in, in uh, San Antonio, and I conferences I've been going to for a long time, and so I just know a lot of interesting people that I always connect with at these conferences, and there's one person who I've known for a long time, 25 years or so, who I always get together with. He's a, now a parish priest in the Church of England and a good friend. And he, he told me this story. Where I don't even know how it came up, but we were talking about uh, how when he became a Christian, he's about my age, so I think it was probably in the late 80s or something, and he was like, you know, really cool guy and was saying, yeah, man, Jesus is rad, and he's my, you know, he's my homeboy and whatever. And he's there meeting with the minister and they're going to pray. And my friend said, he's just like, he's just sprawled back in this chair, like, yeah, you know, <laughs> just sitting back like this. And the minister said to him, as they're going to pray, who do you think you're praying to exactly? <laughs> Not in a harsh way, like you should be afraid of God, but, but that while we do have a very close relationship with God, we're sons and daughters, he is still the Lord. He is still the Lord of the universe, the king of the universe. And we approach him with love, but with an appropriate sense of respect. Lords have servants and servants have a Lord. And this is a metaphor that Jesus has chosen to use for us. And one of the things that also really struck me is is beautiful, especially thinking about a big English manor house or estate, it's not just that you and I are individual servants of the Lord, if you're a Christian, but like we're part of this household staff, the household of God that all Christians are together playing our parts and our roles. And we do have leaders. 
We have had butlers, and if you want to call me Butler Pennington from now on, that's fine. Uh, but we, we have people that are called in various capacities to lead, but we all play a part. And the whole point is that together we're working so that the household of God might be a beautiful place that invites people in. That we all have a part to play in that. And that this just, again, embracing this beautiful image, embracing this beautiful metaphor of us being brothers and sisters, parts of the body of Jesus, but a servant staff in the large and beautiful estate of the kingdom of God with Jesus, the perfectly good king. And I think the last thing I'd say about what it means to be a servant is that it means that we wait. And this is what this passage is really about. That to be a servant means that we are waiting on God. We are attending like a dining room staff in a great hall during a, an important meal. We are ones who are waiting on God. We're looking to him. And that leads to the second question I said I wanted to ask, and that's this. What then does it look like to wait on the Lord? To be a servant is one who is waiting on God. What does that look like to wait on the Lord? I don't know if you've ever asked yourself that question or thought about this, but if you read the New Testament, what you will see is that the primary emphasis of the New Testament is actually forward-looking. It's forward-looking. Faith is basically a synonym with hope in the New Testament. It's looking forward to a time when God will come, return, King Jesus will return, and set the world to right. Will there be no longer death? and destruction, and loss, and grief, and pain, and sorrow, and tears. All the things that we know aren't right, that do not sit well with our soul. You name whatever it is that does not sit well in your soul, that's an invitation for you to pay attention to the fact that something is not right, and that the great hope, the faith in Jesus, is that he is going to return to set the world to write. The New Testament is forward-looking. It's leaning forward. And so our posture now, this text is talking about, and all of the New Testament is this waiting, this attending, this leaning forward into the expectation of God's return. And waiting can be difficult, and it can also be kind of delicious. Have you ever thought about how, just think about Thanksgiving and how the anticipation of the meal and maybe the, the anticipation of loved ones coming to your house and joining together, or of course, Christmas. We have this protracted, we're starting Advent, which is this time of waiting and longing for God to, to return that we celebrate with the incarnation at Christmas. This is a time where the waiting is what drives it all. And you can be a good waiter or a bad waiter. A bad waiter is that you just do not, you know, you, you are miserable until you get the thing. I have an old friend who would always turn to the last page of a novel and read that last. Oh, it crushes my heart because they couldn't wait. Whatever it is, you can, you can wait in a bad way where you're not present to the reality, but you can also learn to wait in a good way. And the month of December is a good one, especially for a kid, to learn to wait where it turns out that the joy is actually not only in the getting, but also the anticipation. You know that, right? And this is the Christian life. We're living in between waiting, longing for something good that we know that is coming, 
and yet we do not yet have it. And what does that mean to wait on the Lord then in the midst of this? Well, it doesn't mean being passive. It doesn't mean also that we impose our will and try to manipulate things to go the way we think they will. I think waiting at the end of the day means being attentive. Waiting on the Lord means being attentive, giving our attention. Do you know that I think giving our attention is really the greatest means of love? Whatever we love, we naturally give our attention to. And it turns out that whatever we give our attention to, we end up loving. Attention is this gift that we have that we can direct our energies towards someone or something. And I think waiting waiting on the Lord looks largely like being attentive to God. That means being attentive to what the Spirit is doing in your own life, being open to that and what he's doing in your group of people and being attentive to that and leaning into that. It also means being attentive to the, the longings we have for the future and the, and the disappointments we feel now. And, and to wait on the Lord is to pay attention to that and then to direct ourselves up. And so what I want to give you here, just to make this really practical, is I want to give you three little phrases that are biblical prayers that I think can help shape us to be attentive to God, to wait on him as we look for him to return. So there's, there's three little phrases I want to give you. You could just easily memorize and just make part of your posture. And the first one is this, not my will, but your will be done. You know where this comes from? This is Jesus at the end of his life. He's the son of God and he submits himself to the suffering that he knows is coming because he wants to follow God and obey God his Father, even though he's the Son of God himself incarnate. And this is a great prayer to shape our hearts in all kinds of circumstances. Not my will, but your will be done. Why? Friends, this is the place of freedom. This prayer is the place of freedom. Because when you and I can say to God, not my will, thy will be done, it gives us the space and the freedom of soul and mind to not have to control everything, to not have to be in charge, not have to manipulate, to submit and say, not my will, but your will be done. The second prayer is this from Psalm 13, which I encourage you to read the whole thing, but Psalm 13 has these powerful words, how long, O Lord? Notice we're calling God Lord because we are his servants and we're saying there is so much brokenness in the world, there is so much pain and loss and fear and shame that we long for you to set the world to right. This is a good posture for a waiter, that is for a server of God, that we are saying, how long, O Lord, please do return. And then the third prayer is this, from the very last couple of verses of the Bible, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. This is recognizing the beauty and goodness and the longing for what we know God is going to do to restore things to to right. And we are saying, come, Lord Jesus. You are the Lord. Come and do bring your kingdom from heaven to earth. And I think these prayers together can shape us in beautiful ways to learn to be servants in the wonderful household of God. And I want to end this by just 
asking a really important question, and that's this. Why is all of that good news? Why is this idea that a big part of our identity is to be servants of God and the household of God, why is that good news? Well, friends, this is good news because the Lord is so good. He is so good to us that he is trustworthy and worthy of our bent knee. He is worthy of all of our service and sacrifice. He is worthy of us giving our allegiance and devotion to because he is so good. And there's a little verse that I didn't say anything about in our first parable in verse 37 that I will read for you again, which is completely shocking, but makes sense of this all. And that is back in verse 37. It says, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he, the master, will dress himself to serve. He'll put on an apron and will have them, the servants, recline at the table and will come and wait on them. What kind of king and what kind of master serves his servants? Jesus, the good king. And in fact, after this, 10 chapters later, when we're on the last night of Jesus' life, the same night in which he says, not my will, but your will be done, he washes their feet, even though he's God incarnate. He serves them this meal, and then they begin to fight. But the verse is up here from Luke 22. In the midst of Jesus teaching them all this, washing their feet, doing all these things, it says, a dispute also arose among them, that is disciples, about which of them was considered to be the greatest. So they were having a little trouble embracing the servant mindset as well. And Jesus said, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you, my people, are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater? The one who's seated at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? That's the greater person. But he says, but I am among you as one who serves. The reason this is good news is that Jesus is not asking us as servants of him to do anything that he himself was not willing to do and anything that he himself did not do. He serves us and then invites us into service as the good and perfect king. We are sons and daughters. If you're a Christian, you're a son and daughter. You are adopted, you're a co-heir, you're a brother, even of Christ, the book of Hebrews says. And at the same time, there's some mystery here. Just like Jesus could be a son and a servant, so too can we. With him as the model of this perfect service. And so the title of the movie, The Remains of the Day, the, kind of the point of the, of the poignant story is that in the days we have remaining to live faithfully and wise, and that's what the main character has to end up to decide to do, even in the midst of his grief and loss. And so too we. And whatever the remains of the days that we have as we await the day of the Lord, 
We embrace serving as a household together, the good and perfect King, Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.